Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We're going to start this show with an issue that probably a lot of our listeners have dealt with. You go to buy an airline ticket and you're offered carbon offsets. Should you buy it? Should you not? I mean, I think at this point, we all know that climate change is a massive issue. But will these offsets actually help? To help me discuss this, I have J.D. Shadell on the line. J.D. wrote a terrific article for the Washington Post that kind of gives away the answer, but we're going to unpack <laughs> why. The headline of that article is, Airlines Want You to Buy Carbon Offsets. Experts say they're a scam. Hey, JD, nice to speak with you. Nice to speak with you as well. Thank you so much for for having me on the show. So this this headline gives it away, but <laughs> let's talk about what carbon offsets were supposed to do. How were they supposed to work? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So I think it also helps to understand the context of aviation as a difficult to decarbonize sector because it literally runs on on fossil fuels. And so people often will hear the percentage of carbon emissions that the aviation industry emits, which is about 2.5% estimated of total global carbon emissions. And some say the overall impact of aviation stands at uh, more like 3.5% when you factor in some of those other elements like contrails and whatnot. But but basically, that number can sound a little, a little small, but it's actually a really alarming number given how such a small percentage of the population of our planet currently flies. And right. aviation is a growing sector. So by next year, it's estimated that 4 billion people will, there will be 4 billion air passengers um, in 2024. And so that's not... Uh, 4 billion in terms of uh, the population of the planet. It's just if count how many passengers um, there are in total flights, but it's actually a really small percentage of the world that actually flies by some estimates suggest maybe 80% of the world has never flown. So if you can see the, the hmm. growing industry, the impact of, uh, you know, flying is quite great and, and, and concerning. And also if, if we think of our, you know, each of us have a carbon budget, let's say, um, one flight can kind of ruin that like uh, for, for the year. So, I mean, if you're even if you're doing things like not driving or eating right. a vegetarian diet, one flight can be significantly worse than a, than a lot of those other activities you're doing. So, well, so that's, that's sort of the I think context. I remember I think. in your article, you say that one flight is the equivalent of dri driving 190,000 miles. Um, I'm, I, the, I don't have that stat right off the top of my head, but basically, okay. sure. uh, interestingly, you can plug in different flights using different calculators and they never seem to agree. <laughs> that was something that I <laughs> couldn't quite fit in the article, but that starts to, so you, you start to get a little suspicious of what yeah. carbon offsets claim to do. And to answer your question, what they claim is really that your flight, you, you buying this, this ticket to, to go somewhere, there's a CO2 em emitted. And so if you can support a program that can take an equivalent amount of emissions out of our atmosphere, that can balance it out. And, and essentially that is what 
a lot of major brands will use to back up their very dubious claims of sure. carbon neutrality. So that's that's how it's supposed to work. But of course, I'll stop here, but th- it doesn't quite work that way as the headline uh, kind of alludes to. Right. So what are the mechanisms that most of these programs use or claim to use that will take the carbon out of the air? Yeah. So carbon markets have evolved quite a bit in the last decade, but but some of the experts I spoke to still describe it sort of as, as kind of the Wild West in some ways. And so there's a, a, a pretty wide range of, of, of ways of offsetting. So the, the most common ones, though, for, for aviation for, and for voluntary offsets, the, the types of offsets you'll see as a passenger um, that you have the option to support those are typically uh, what you might call nature-based offsets and, and, and most often forestry-based offsets. So uh, the claim is that you, know, you can protect a natural area from deforestation and therefore that you know, uh, protection uh, removes emissions naturally. And there are a couple other Which sounds ways, beautiful. Which sounds beautiful, doesn't but, but, but it? Before we leave that, it does sound beautiful. I mean, you're planting trees. What could be better? Why doesn't that work? <laughs> when we specifically look at the deforestation protection offsets, those are the ones that very detailed investigations have found to be mostly a sham. So oh. I'd encourage everyone to check out a Guardian investigation that came out earlier this year, which uh, looked into the, the largest program that sort of oversees rainforest carbon offsets and and found that 90%, more than 90% didn't represent any actual carbon reductions. So the reasons for why that is are are quite complex. Uh, It it sometimes has to do with the the methodology used can uh, be quite controversial for how you determine uh, if you're actually protecting from deforestation or land clearing. Uh, there's there's a lot of layers of nuance to it, but basically, the growing scientific consensus is that these programs, um, and again, they're not all alike. Some some right. have been found to uh, be more legitimate and valid than others, but but by and large, they they raise a lot of questions about uh, some. The Guardian report actually called them uh, phantom credits, or they they just weren't really weren't really real. Oh. And I, I will say that like they sound like they're doing good things, and so it's. It's not so much that, you know, obviously we want to protect forests. Uh, the, the, the problem, though, is that it's, it's not actually reducing the emissions claimed. And it kind of creates an environment where polluters can go on polluting and use that as the basis huh. for carbon neutrality claims. And that's the big issue, because if you are not actually doing anything with your money, but you think you are, then you're not going to hold these uh, companies to account. I was I was in England last summer. I've discussed this on the show before, and I actually went to the Rolls-Royce factory because Rolls-Royce is one of the biggest creators of uh, airplane engines on the planet. Yeah. And they're actually working on a lot of green initiatives things that would start using sustainable fuels from day one or use uh, different types of, of other types of fuels or reshape the engine so that when the propeller whirls, it takes in more air 
and actually, so they reshaped the propeller, I should say. And because of that, it can use 25% less fuel for each rotation. But in order for these types of programs to be put into place, the airlines have to spend a lot of money. Governments have to get involved because SAF, which is sustainable aviation fuel, there's no there's no uh, supply chain for it, and so it's very very expensive right now. And there's also other issues with it. It could cut into uh, materials we need to feed human beings. But is the point with with carbon offsets? that we are letting people think they're solving a problem so they don't grapple with other actual ways to solve this problem? I think that's 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 answers it. It really has to do with the fact that we need to decarbonize our economies. And carbon offsets are used by corporations, like airlines, to say that they're doing some great things, uh, to say you know that they are... Uh, carbon neutral, or it's the claim for a carbon neutral uh, target. And in fact, their emissions are are continuing to rise. So it's not even just mm-hmm. that, you know, emissions stay the same and we're we're offsetting at a certain level. It's that emissions are projected to to keep rising as more people are flying. So interestingly, not that many air passengers voluntarily purchase carbon offsets. It's uh, between one to 3% is, is the estimate. Mm-hmm. And and that's the basis of these programs. They're saying you can pay $10 because everybody on the plane is going to pay $10 and that's right. going to offset the the carbon on the uh, the plane emits. Right, exactly. So, I mean, the reality is that most passengers don't seem to be buying this, but but airlines are. And so that's why it's still a really important conversation because even if passengers aren't buying them, Airlines are either they're required to by by regulation and and there are different methodologies that go into those programs, but some of them still face some of the same problems or they're voluntarily purchasing them. And and that's where it kind of, as as some critics say, sort of a climate scam. Yeah, I, I remember something from your article where you say, look, somebody could be investing in a program that protects forests, but that forest could burn down uh, exactly. or some other thing that we we cannot foresee could happen to that forest and, and all the money invested in it is burned up. I know there's something called carbon capture, which takes carbon out of the air. And I've read about scientists now have the ability to inject that carbon underground into rocks, basically, and thus take it out of the atmosphere. But that doesn't seem to be ever what's meant by carbon offsetting, right? Right. Yeah. There, there are uh, a lot of different proposed technologies that aim to remove carbon from the atmosphere or different concepts for airplanes that, you know, uh, and, and aviation fuels, as you mentioned. And, and those are quite complex topics as well, because not all SAF, for example, sustainable aviation fuel is, is created alike, or some of these technologies right. are still hypothetical or not quite ready to scale up. And so there's this sense that aviation has been quite late to uh, focusing on decarbonization. And offsets may have been part of the, the problem with that. So I also did a piece actually earlier this year, I, I write the future of travel column for Condé Nast Traveler, and I did a piece about 
can aviation ever become sustainable? And folks might want to find that article if they're interested. We kind of look at some of these different technologies. And I spoke with a range of experts, scientists, engineers to sort of understand like what actually has the most potential to, to move the needle. Oh. And it's, it's a really fascinating topic. Obviously, it's, it's the area where I think it's one of the biggest challenges. Decarbonizing aviation is not, not an easy feat. But as you said, we need governments to step in. We need funding to accelerate some of these proposed solutions. And right now, investments in offsets do not seem to be achieving their stated aims of reducing emissions as the industry is growing its overall yeah. share. Yeah, it's something we all need to be worrying about. We all need to be politically involved if we're travelers to solve this, because right now it's it's a it's a tough nut to crack. What what hit me when I visited the factory was the engineers were working on so many different types of solutions. And it may be that there is no one solution. It may be that that it's a it's an accrual of small steps. Like I, I spoke to one engineer who told me, "Look, you cannot run a plane on electricity. Batteries are too heavy for anything but short haul flights." But they That's have right. been finding that they can use batteries just for taxiing on the runways, and just that small usage can save something like 70%, seven, not 70, 7% <laughs> of the fuel used in a flight, which, you know, adds up after time. So it, it may be that we we are going to have these different shaped propeller and then a battery for taxiing on the runway and then maybe some SAF added to regular aviation fuel. It may have to be this hodgepodge of of solutions. But as you say in the article, if we think that it's being solved by uh, by these offsets, that's just greenwashing and it's a fantasy. Yes. And in addition to to what you're you're saying, I think also uh, activists in this space would would also make clear that one of the best things we could, all can do as travelers is fly less. And look at ways we can take longer trips, travel more slowly, thinking about alternative modes of transportation. That that's one significant way each of us can can have some some impact. Other right. other things, as you mentioned, getting involved in advocacy for governments and uh, you know other regulatory bodies to to move the needle and. And we do need some radical changes. I do think, as you said, it's going to be a lot of small things sort of adding up. But but there there is a, a need for the industry to pretty fundamentally think about how it moves forward and burning fossil fuels and growing emissions the way that the industry has been in the trajectory it's on is is not sustainable and is not something that we can allow in a climate emergency. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. Excellent. Thank you again for having me on and really happy to chat about this really important topic. If you're a fan of PBS, you probably have seen my next 
guest. She is Christine Van Blockland. She has a wonderful travel show there. It's called Curious Traveler. Hey, Christine, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hello, Pauline. I am so thrilled to be joining you today. This is very exciting. Well, it's exciting for me. I have an actual TV star on this program. For folks who have not yet had the pleasure of seeing your show, tell them a little bit about it. Sure. So for us, um, since it's a PBS show, which I always say I wouldn't have my show anywhere else, it is educational, but not the painful kind of educational. You know? I say, <laughs> right. um, so it is a travel series, but it's also a history series. So I make it fun for the viewer. And um, as a former journalist, I guess still a current travel journalist, my little shtick is that I answer, ask and answer the who, what, where, why, when, and how of each destination. And simply, it's just so that the viewer and the traveler can get more out of their travels. Um, my little joke is, don't go all the way to Paris, snap a selfie in front of the Eiffel Tower and say, oh, I've experienced French culture. I want people mm. to know the history so that they appreciate what they see a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been asked in the past, should someone go to a destination totally green and not knowing anything about it? And I think that's the worst thing that you can do. Often you'll miss what's really important Part of the big fun of travel is anticipating travel, don't you think? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you bring that up because I think that there is a happy medium where it's, you know, you want to do, absolutely do some homework ahead of time, know what you're going to see, but leave some room for discovery so that, you know, you don't know every single corner. You're not sort of mapping out, hey, I want to go here. Hey, I want to go there, but know enough about it that when you go to Paris, for example, You'll know something like the Bievre uh, River is underground and there's these little gold medallions that are on the sidewalk or embedded into the streets. And that way you'll kind of go, oh, wait, I want to look for those. Because if you didn't yeah. know that ahead of time, you wouldn't know to look. Um, you know, so you want to leave a, a little bit of, of room for discovery, but definitely know why you're going. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yes, absolutely. And I think even if you're incredibly well-informed about the destination, there's always going to be surprises and there's no way you can always see everything in each destination. For example, Portugal. I've been to Portugal, but I've only been to the cities. And you did a wonderful segment recently about the 12 historic villages of Portugal. Why are these villages so important? And and tell us a little bit about what you discovered there. And I'm also glad that you framed it like that because a lot of travelers, and, and understandably so, people don't have, you know, they some, sometimes only have two weeks of vacation a year. Of course, you're going to go to Lisbon or Porto or the main cities. But the Portuguese government, through their tourism office um, about two decades ago, they established this initiative to get people to travel and discover these gorgeous little villages. And when I say little, <laughs> one of them has popu a population of two. So oh my goodness. Two. So, and they all have history to them. And they're just, it, you feel like you're going back in time. A lot of these were, you know, date back to at least the 12th century before Portugal was even a country. So it's called Portugal's 12 Historic Villages, and they are nearly all kind of in the east or eastern border of Portugal, which borders Spain, of course, in the central part of the country. And you can, there are guided tours, which will make your life easier. Or if you're a bit more adventurous, you can get a map, you can get an app, and you can drive your own car and go and see these. We filmed three. We filmed Castelo Rodrigo, Belmonte, which I learned how to say Belmonte, not Belmont. <laughs> 
and Sortalia. So one of these towns is, as you said, Belmonte. It has Jewish history. I'm assuming that means it has a tragic history. To it, ha- it has a tragic, but also a, a positive uh, legacy to it. So I'll do the, the short history here. So as everybody probably knows, so throughout Spain and also in Portugal um, in the 15th century, it was the Spanish Inquisition. And the edict was that, okay, we have to expel our Jewish populations. So for a short period there, any Jewish people from Spain, some of the Jewish people from Spain crossed over the border into Portugal, because for a short period of time, the Portuguese king said, okay, you can practice your religion and your faith and your traditions. So they, huh. they they came there. But but unfortunately, once they had gotten settled into villages like Belmonte, he changed his mind. So this is where the story begins. And there's actually a documentary on it. It's fascinating. So these families lived in secret. They lived in secret with their faith. So they pretended once they were outside of their homes, they pretended to be Catholic. And the, huh. there's terms for them. Um, one of the terms is crypto Jew, as in a, a secret Jewish person or a new Mm. Christian. They pretended to be a new Christian, but inside their homes, they were practicing their Jewish faith. But because they were afraid of being discovered, they never had any books written in Hebrew, nothing written down. So this went on for centuries. And the really interesting thing about this, I'm getting shivers thinking about it, because Belmonte is so remote, the families there, many generations later, thought that the Inquisition and these laws were still in effect into the early 20th century. So it wasn't wow. until an historian named Samuel Schwartz discovered, and that's in air quotes, discovered them, told them, hey, you don't have to practice in secret anymore. It's okay. And wrote a book about it. And so when you visit, you'll get a tour of this village and you'll see carved just outside the homes, these crosses. And there's a lot of theories Hmm. to that. Um, One is that the Jewish families were doing that to kind of say, hey, look, obviously we're Christian. The other theory is that it was the Inquisition going, hey, we've checked inside the home. They are Christian and Catholic. Uh We've done this. And then the latest theory is that it was a cross, but not really a Christian cross. And it was actually secret um, Hebrew letters. I mean, is that a lot for one village? Fascinating. It's fascinating. It was so fascinating. Tiny village with such a big history. Yeah. And you also you also went to Sortella. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Where it's known for the eternal kiss. That sounds very romantic. What does that mean? It's wonderful. Okay, so Sortelia's nickname is the Flintstones because of all the stone, and it looks like you're going back, you know, to the Neolithic era. So the Eternal Kiss is basically a wonderful legend that there was a wealthy family and a not-so-wealthy family, and their children, very Romeo and Juliet, fell in love. And the mother of the, um, the wealthy son said, I don't approve of this. I don't want you hmm. marrying or falling in love with this common girl, so I'm going to lock you together in an Eternal Kiss. And what the eternal kiss is, it's actually just these two stones that look like they're kissing that leads up to where the castle is. Um, so it's huh. supposed, to, supposed to be that couple frozen in stone as punishment for daring to fall in love. So oh, that's stone. a mean mother. I, that's wow. what I said. I was like, all right, that's a bit much, lady. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> You've also filmed in a country I've never had the pleasure to visit, Estonia. What drew you to 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 do a, a segment there in Tallinn? Well, in Estonia, I think a lot of people. So obviously, there's the three Baltic countries: Estonia, Latvia, and um, Lithuania. So I think maybe people, especially with today's current climate, as they say, people yeah. are a little hesitant um, because Russia is right there. But I say, think yeah. of these Baltic countries as 
You know what else is right there? Finland and Sweden and Denmark, mm. all these places sure. you're going to anyway. Don't be afraid. They are their own country. And for first timers, you will be shocked and amazed at how much is there. It's not this remote place. So Tallinn is their capital city. And if um, any of your listeners love old towns as much as I do, I live for them. It is like all the wonderful old towns you've seen across Europe. Um, it's this, they've got their a, a beautiful city wall all around it. A lot of it is still there. They have this gorgeous town hall, which it's claimed to fame. It's the oldest one in all of Northern Europe. They have a town hall square which looks like, you know, Belgium or any of these places you've probably been to. And they've got all kinds of fascinating history there. So obviously for Estonia, it was ruled twice by Russia, once during the Russian Empire, once, of course, during Soviet rule. So they've got this one gorgeous, gorgeous Russian Orthodox church called the Alexander mm -hmm. Nevsky Cathedral. And as you might guess, it's kind of a mixed bag there as far as <laughs> how Estonians feel about it, because it is a gorgeous piece of architecture but it's seen by some as a symbol of the Russian oppression. Sure. But it's still there and it's still functioning. Um, and, and it's actually in a really prominent spot in the city. Other little spots to look for. There's this lovely little alley called St. Catherine's Passage. And it's named after a monastery that used to be there. And it's got, for all, for all those Instagrammers out there, it's where everybody goes and takes a picture. So go there early in the morning because all the youngsters <laughs> will be around there later blocking your way. And another quick one, if I have time um, for Talon. Sure. So as you follow along the wall, there's this little kind of, I'm going to call it um, an observation point, I suppose. It's the weirdest thing where if you don't have a tour guide, and I recommend just taking a tour, you'll miss it, but it's so important to its history. So it's basically another cross, we're talking about crosses, a big cross on this platform on the ground, and then the flag of Denmark. And then on the opposite side of it, there's a little rock and it has the year 1219. And you're like, what the heck is this? So long story oh. short, Denmark, just like Russia and everybody else, wanted to conquer Estonia. So in 1219, Denmark came and conquered Estonia. And during the battle, the legend says that from the sky, the flag of, or sorry, a cross fell on the ground with the symbols of Denmark on there. So that <laughs> they, they took that as, oh, well, Denmark is supposed to take it now. So to this day, if you're into coats of arms and symbols, which I love, there, uh, you'll see three blue lions on the coat of arms uh, for Estonia and also Tallinn. That comes from Denmark. And also there's another uh, coat of arms for Tallinn that is the flag of Denmark. So that's the, as we call it, the curious connection between oh. Denmark. And, yeah. And it's this little corner that you might not know about. So it, with all these places... I always say for first timers, just go ahead and do the walking tour. And even if you don't like walking tours, just do it once and then you'll know where to go back to and spend some more time on the places you like the best. Yeah, absolutely. You also say that Wales is your favorite place on earth. Now that's, I think, surprising. I've been to Wales. I think it's an extraordinary part of the world. I was lucky enough to go to a wedding in Wales Aww. once and I've been there a couple of times otherwise, but such a fabulously welcoming place, a place with its own language, with a lot, which a lot of people will find surprising. And I, I've heard you can say this, it has the longest place name in the United Kingdom. So what is that name? Okay. I'm going to say it incorrectly, but I'm going to do my best. And so for any Welsh listeners out there, my apologies in advance. So this is, this is the best I can do. So uh, here we go. Clanfair Pulgwingil 
go Gary Quindrobol Landacilio go go go. Is that great? Wow. Is that great? That's uh, amazing. And that's one place. That's one place. And there's a train station there and it has it all written out for you. And they have a tourist shop there. And it basically, it's, even though it's all one word, it's, uh, you know how in German, they kind of take a bunch of words and squish them together. So it's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's this one, it's telling you where it is. And it's something along, um, it's, oh, it's the church beside the whirling pool of the red something or other. So it's basically giving you directions <laughs> of where to find it. And it's fantastic. I love that. So why do you think that Wales is so underrated? I think, well, first of all, and I honestly still to this day say it's my favorite place in the world. It is just lovely. It is quiet. And it's my cup of tea. It's just all these little villages. You feel like you've gone back in time and it's got gorgeous national parks, the Brecon Beacons National Park. There's this one place you can stand on called Hay Bluff and you look across for miles and it looks like a patchwork quilt of all these different greens. It's fantastic. Mm. I love it. Yeah. yeah I love absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, it's beautiful. At, at the wedding, actually the morning of the wedding, the people who were per- participating in the hunt, and I know a lot of people are anti that, but they all galloped up to the house of the bride. We were all told we had to go there in the morning with their dogs, all in their red coats and it just felt like we had gone back several centuries. And you see those things in Wales. It's this country that's dotted with castles. Yeah. And that, that, that as you said, you, you can stand on a bluff and not see any cities. All you see is this patchwork of green. It is. It's stunning. And all the little villages, there's one, I'm probably saying the name wrong again, so apologies in advance. Betisee Coed, I think is what it is. And if you can, hmm. if you seek it out, they've got these little tea rooms. And I'm not even a tea drinker. I just like the experience, you know. And and that's all that's all over the UK. It you know you just go to these little tiny places. Um, and you mentioned castles in Wales. Their claim to fame, I think it's it's more than 600 castles or something, which is more yeah. more per square mile than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I mean, and they've got this little book town of Hay on Wye, and they've all got these... Um, Before oh, we leave that, what's a book town? Ah, sorry. So um, this particular book town is, they are known for having uh, book festivals, and they've got so many book shops. And this particular mm. one, he crowned himself king of Hay on Wye. It was hilarious. He bought up all these books from American libraries that were closing, even though he's English um, or Welsh, excuse me, um, and brought them over to his town. And now people go there and they have an honor system library out in the open. You know, you kind of take a book and you pay a pound and it, it's just, it's, you're like, I love these people. These people like reading so much. <laughs> They've got to be good people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. To me, that's a, that's a great way to tell somebody's yeah. character is how much they read. Before I let you go, I don't think I've ever had a guest on this show say anything about Montenegro. So why should folks go to Montenegro? Montenegro has such a fascinating history. When you go there, and again, I'm crazy about symbols, the first thing you'll see is you enter into the old town under the gates are symbols of Venice. And you think, what the heck, Venice? And it makes you realize, oh my goodness, so the Venetian Republic stretched all the way out here. And when you go, and I hope you do go, um, there is a church that looks like it is floating out in the middle of the bay. And the very Mm -hmm. short version of that is 
two sailors were out there in their rowboat, you know, back in the Middle Ages, and they saw a, a vision of the Virgin Mary on a rock. And so they decided to build something in honor of her, but there was no island. So the entire community comes out and they throw rocks down at this spot and build up this little island. And that's where wow. the chapel is today. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. That reminds me of, of there's a palace in Udaipur, India. Oh, wow. And they built the palace to the very edges of this small island in the middle of a lake. And because it goes right to the edge, it too looks like it's floating. It's, it it's a big place for honeymooners to go. Oh, that's fat. That'll be next on my list. I've, I've never been to India and I'm mad at myself oh. for that. So that has to be next. You got to go. You got to go. Well, you've made me want to go to so many parts of Europe. Thank you so much, Christine. This uh, this just is is wonderful, as wonderful as your show. Thank you. You've been so wonderful to have me on. It's been an honor. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. No